0: There are some sermons that are just plain exciting to preach. They come together quickly and are energizing to get onto the page. You just can't wait to write. You're excited to get into the pulpit because you know that not only is it relevant, but it's encouraging. It's a feel-good sermon, and it feels good to give it. Then there are sermons that you've struggled with for days and barely eke out, putting your bad habit of biting your fingernails to good use. You might have guessed with that kind of introduction that my experience this week was the latter experience. Preaching on a topic that so many can relate to, but so many have experienced with great pain, is not enjoyable to me. Divorce is painful and common in and out of the church. On top of that, texts like Mark 10 have been used to guilt and manipulate, causing even greater pain than the divorce itself. With that said, I'd like to state up front that my purpose in this sermon is not to guilt, shame, or cause greater pain, but to invite us into a deeper consideration of Scripture and discipleship. Let's start with Scripture. During this sermon, I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Mark 10 so that you can follow along with me. In Mark 10, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, to the cross. He knows that he'll suffer and die and is obediently journeying to Jerusalem. Verse 1 says that he enters the region of Judea, where our story today takes place. He's getting closer to his destination, And he's not far from where King Herod lives. This is the King Herod who married his sister-in-law Herodias and was criticized by John the Baptist. Do you remember that story from a few weeks ago? The wonderful story of the beheading of John the Baptist? Herodias held a grudge against John because he said that it was unlawful for Herod to marry his brother's wife. Herodias' daughter danced for Herod, and he was so pleased that Herod promised whatever she asked for, even up to half his kingdom. She asked her mother what she should ask for, and she told her, the head of John the Baptist. Herod didn't want to have John killed, but because he made this promise to her, and in front of all of those guests, he conceded. He ordered for John to be beheaded. As Jesus enters Judea, he teaches the crowds, and guess who shows up? None other than the usual suspects, the Pharisees. You can almost hear that menacing soundtrack as they approach. They have come for no other purpose than to test Jesus. And it's immediately suspicious that their test centers on a topic that led to John's beheading right in that very area. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They asked Jesus. Now, in their day, divorce was a hotly debated topic, with Pharisees taking two different sides. There was the restrictive school of Shammai, which held that divorce was permitted for adultery and adultery only. And then there was the lax school of Hillel, which gave a wide range of reasons for a man to divorce his wife. For example... If a wife spoiled a dish of food, if she talked to a strange man, if she spoke disrespectfully of her husband's relatives in his hearing, if she was argumentative, which was described as being able to hear her in the next house, all of these and more were reasons a man could divorce his wife. And it was this view, this lax view, that prevailed in their day. The result was that divorce was incredibly common, even for the most trivial reasons, or for no reason at all. And women, therefore, hesitated to marry because marriage was so unstable. Divorce was common, and it was widely accepted and implemented by the religious leaders. This wasn't a secular process. Certificates of divorce were written by skilled rabbis who then gave it, passed it on to the Sanhedrin, who then gave them their divorce. And the process of divorce remained on the whole exceedingly easy and at the entire discretion of the man. The Pharisees come to test Jesus by asking if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. It's clearly a test because the only answer is yes, it is lawful, of course, for a man to divorce his wife. So if Jesus takes the bait and says yes, maybe he'll get caught in a dispute over which school is right, the stricter view or the lax view, and maybe his response will reach the ears of Herod and then who knows what will happen, maybe he'll get caught and really be in some serious trouble. But Jesus doesn't care to argue or play games with them. In verse three, Jesus responds with a question. What did Moses command you? They reply, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Did you catch that? Instead of referencing a command that Moses gave them, the Pharisees reference a permission found in Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus isn't wanting to hear whether or not Moses permitted divorce. He wants to hear what Moses commanded. In verse 5, Jesus says that it was because of their hardness of hearts that Moses wrote that law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Instead of quoting from Deuteronomy, like the Pharisees, Jesus quotes another couple passages that was also believed to have been written by Moses. He quotes Genesis 1.27 and 2.24, pointing to the deeper reality of marriage, that in marriage, two become one. Two were created to become united as one flesh. Therefore, let no one separate what God has united. It's nothing to rejoice over when a loophole is discovered or when reasons stack up to sever a marital relationship. Jesus wants to dwell on the purpose and reality of marriage, not quibble over how to justify a divorce and put a feather in any theologian's cap. God created man and woman to be united. God did not intend for that union to be severed, for that relationship to ever end. God's intention was that that union would last forever. And Genesis reveals something more, something deeper. Genesis says that in marriage, two become one flesh. Two become one flesh. One of my favorite things as a little girl was to have my parents recount the story of how they met. I honestly have no idea how many times I asked them and how many times they told them, but it never got old. I have these memories of sitting in the middle of the back of the car so that I could hear and see them perfectly, and I'd ask them this story over and over again. And each time that I would hear this story, I'd hear some new detail, some new angle, some new feeling, something funny, and it never got old. When I was in seminary, one of uh, the counseling professors told us that This is one of the indicators of a healthy marriage, or even a hopeful marriage, that they have smiles, they have joy when they talk about how they met, how they became a couple. One of the couples I greatly admire at St. Timothy's is Warren and Jenny Finch. I admire their kindness toward one another, their deference to one another, the way they do things together, even watch our son for hours, and ours. I love how they tease each other and how they deeply respect and love one another. They recently told me tongue-in-cheek that they exasperate each other because they even make the same smart comments over the silliest things. They saw some silly commercial and had the same, same exact response to it. They laugh because they have become more and more like one another as the years have passed, more and more as one. Marriage is something we all feel strongly about because it's foundational to who we are and how we understand the world. It's personal and sensitive because in marriage, two become one. And perhaps the ones who know that best are the ones who have lost their spouse, whether through death or divorce. When they lose their other half, the feeling often expressed is a loss of their own body. As a friend once told me, I feel like I've lost a limb. Sometimes I reach out and try to grab it, but there's nothing there. I ache. One of the references we, resources we distribute at St. Timothy's is a series of booklets called Journeying Through Grief by Kenneth C. Houck these booklets are powerful companions in grief. One of the ways Hauk describes loss is in reference to time. He writes that when you lose a parent, you lose your past. When you lose a spouse, it's like losing your present. Marriage was created by God to unite us forever. And when that union is broken, there is a tremendous deal of grief. So, there is no reason for Jesus to debate divorce. Let's look at what happens next. In verse 10, it says that they go into the house, and his disciples ask him about this. Jesus replies in verse 11 Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Jesus' response here seems shocking. For him not to comment on divorce with the Pharisees, but then tell his disciples that remarriage is adultery seems especially harsh. How do we understand these verses? I needed some pretty serious help here, so I referenced my my commentary library. I found one of my former seminary professors' commentary on Mark, And he highlights how strange these verses are, verses 10 to 12. And he writes, here Jesus seems to somehow reintroduce rules about divorce right after arguing that texts containing such rules are not to be the focus. So everything depends on the question Jesus is answering. Verse 10 says that Jesus' disciples ask him about this. What is this? Two possibilities are, when is divorce and or remarriage wrong? And is it still adultery if I first divorce my present wife and then marry the person I want to sleep with? If Jesus' response is to the first question, attention is created with the rest of Scripture and the focus of the previous verses where Jesus is not preoccupied with rules of divorce doesn't seem to, to jive, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't seem to fit. So what if Jesus is answering the second question? Is it still adultery if I first divorce my wife and then marry the person I want to sleep with? If Jesus' responds to the second question, Jesus is then insisting that God calls for marital faithfulness. He does not permit legal games to justify sin. These verses deny that adultery can be legalized and justified by means of divorce and remarriage. In these verses, Jesus is also surprisingly elevating women. In a culture which gave women very little recourse in their marriages, Jesus is equally calling men to fidelity as he is women. Men are responsible for maintaining their marriages just as women are men and women are equally responsible for the care of their marriage. As disciples of Jesus, it matters how we treat one another, especially the most vulnerable and the ones who are closest to us. It matters how we treat our husbands and wives. It matters what the quality of our marriages are like. But wading into conversations about marriage and divorce is incredibly difficult. Not simply because of how personal it is, but because there have been frequently two polar opposite responses, the secular and the religious. The secular response is that marriage doesn't carry any deeper meaning than a piece of paper, so divorce is really okay, even if it's for a reason like your spouse no longer makes you happy. But the Christian response has often been equally unacceptable. Many Christians read scripture and come away with the idea that divorce is never acceptable. Many Christians read scripture and uh, and come away that it's never acceptable, so women are encouraged to stay in abusive relationships for years, silently suffering while the church turns a blind eye. In Mark 10, Jesus gives no simple answer. He doesn't give a, confidence of, of, uh, a vote of confidence for divorce, and he doesn't deny divorce. He points to marriage and the seriousness of marriage. He points to a third way. Life is not so simple, and Jesus doesn't treat it as if it were. His compassion for the hurt, the powerless, and the lost meets you and me exactly where we are, and he gently shepherds us into deeper discipleship. And that discipleship may take on a variety of forms. For those who are called to singleness, I encourage you to praise God for the unique union that you have with Jesus, wholly committed to his purposes. May God be glorified in your life. If you find yourself recently single, I encourage you to ask for prayer. For this I encourage you to ask for prayer that this unexpected time may draw you deeper to God. If you are single but desire to be married, I encourage you to pray for patience until God brings you the one who will sharpen you and draw you into a deeper relationship with Jesus. If you're in a painful marriage, I encourage you to seek support No one is meant to go this alone. Ask for prayer from trusted friends and family and find a counselor that you can trust. If you're in a healthy marriage, remember that your marriage needs constant tending. And remember that your relationship with your husband or wife is the most important human relationship that you have, more so than your relationship with your children, your parents, your co-workers, or anyone else. Treasure and give thanks for your spouse. As we journey together on this path of discipleship, may Jesus alone be your shepherd, and may he guide you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that we are not perfect. There are many ways that we have hurt our relationships, that we have hurt our spouses. Lord, we we pray that you would continue to draw us closer to yourself. We pray that you would give us greater joy and forgiveness, forgiving the other and also forgiving ourselves. We pray that we would be a community of peace and love. We pray that you'd continue to give us wisdom and love, especially for those who are hardest for us to love. We thank you that you understand us, that you know us, and that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.